Uh, We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. You're welcome to to open up there. We're going to read it together, and uh, and we're going to pray. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. I'll give you a chance to turn there. Verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of the Lord Uh, The word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you needy. Recognize that we do not have what is necessary to enter relationship with you, to approach your throne on which sits Jesus. And we do not have what is necessary to care for one another, to look out for one another, to treat each other as we ought. And so as we look at your word, we ask Give us what we need. Provide for us the grace that comes by the word, through the work of the Spirit. And change us. Make us different in our hearts, in our minds, and in our actions. We ask that you would change us this morning. Lord Jesus, that you would be praised that you would be glorified, and it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. I want to take a moment to talk about a word that that doesn't get used often in vernacular today. And when it does, it is typically used in a negative context. Um, But it's something that all of us have a functional understanding of, and the, the word is virtue. Now, virtue is an interpersonal behavior, an attitude that has been deemed a moral standard, maybe a moral high ground, that it is better. That to act virtuously is better than otherwise. Now, much in our time has been made of something called virtue signaling, which is the practice of uh, putting up a flag or shooting up a flare saying, hey, look, Virtue, good, right, is being done here, right now. It's when you and I communicate some sort of either public support or public outrage, not so much because it's right, but because of the effect that it might have for us on our behalf. Maybe our status in society or our public image. And the key questions to determining if we are virtue signaling is this. 
When we do so, when we call things out, when we speak publicly, who are we talking to? Are we talking to the general public or are we actually talking to people that matter? And who are we talking for? Are you talking for yourself and your own good and what that might look like? Or are you talking for a party that has actually been offended? Now, virtue signaling is killing public discourse. And yet, that makes virtue no less important, no less real or significant. Now, virtue is is interpersonal. It is not public. It is not for the world. Virtue, virtuous living, is relational in nature. It has to do with one directly to another. Gratitude. Gratitude is a virtue. Commonly understood as one's attitude of reception, which is gratefulness. When someone I care about gives me something, shares a gift, there is an expected, an ideal response. There is a best that the person who gives that gift ought to sense my gratefulness, my my gratitude, my thanks for it. Not just the gift itself, but for the giver. Now, there are virtues in our society now that are different than than in history past. Virtues change, at least in terms of the society's understanding of what is a virtue, can change. Now, there are some that remain, that have remained virtuous, at least in Western eyes, for centuries. Plato and Aristotle theorized that there are four primary virtues. Wisdom, moderation, or achieving balance in all things, courage, and injustice or, or fairness towards one neighbor, one's neighbors. They have remained high virtues, if you will. And there are some virtues that, that we ought to be suspect of as Christians. And I'll just highlight one. It's the virtue, I call it the virtue of affirmation. Uh, a decade ago, this virtue was entitled tolerance. As a country, as, as a culture, we are beyond simply tolerating everyone's beliefs, which is in one sense correct. We are now at a place where we must affirm all beliefs as good. And anything short of that is deemed a moral evil. evil. And that is a virtue that, that we ought to be suspicious of, that we ought to, to sense as, as incorrect. Now, Brothers and sisters, we have a source for virtue. We are not left wondering, questioning, where does virtue come from? What ought we do? How ought we live? What ought our behavior be towards one another? We have an authority that has determined these things. And we have a little snapshot here in Colossians chapter 3, where where Paul, in verse 12 and 13, he gives us some, some actions, some activities. Here's what he says. And he likens them to to garments uh, that you put on. 3.12. Put on then, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other when there is grievance, when there is sin against one another. 
we are aware of most of these things. That we realize that there are actions and attitudes that we ought to express within the confines of the body of Christ. And outside of it to to a certain extent in a certain manner. But it's just a list. We have this list and it's part of a, a bigger one. Various things that we ought to do. And what they do for me when I see them is they give a sense of insufficiency. I see this huge list of things that I ought to have done, that I ought to do, how I ought to feel from the heart, as he says, and I sense in every way that I have fallen short of these things. Here's what he says in verse 14. Over all of these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect harmony. We have things that we ought to do, but there is a principal virtue. That there is one high attitude and act flowing out of the heart that we embrace, that encompasses all other things that the Christian is called to do. Here's what he says. Love binds them in perfect harmony. It brings them together. It gives them purpose. It gives them source. It gives them meaning. Love is a heartfelt motive that manifests itself in seeking the good of another. Let no one convince you otherwise. Love is indeed internal. There is a sense of action to love and attitude to love, but its source is the heart. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the high virtue of love. And we're going to see three things in the coming verses, starting in verse 15. We're going to see love's movement, love's manner, and love's motive. Love, love's movement, love's manner, and love's motive. But I think in order to keep ourselves from moralism, to keep ourselves from meaningless activity that looks good to the surrounding world, we need to see love's source. 1 John 4, 7. Love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him so that love comes from God it requires knowing God and being born of him so how we get love the source of its of love if you will is by looking at the great act of love that we begin in all of our efforts by looking at the gospel that we look at the ultimate act of sacrifice sufficient for the payment of our sins in order for us to have what we need to love one another, to express love's manner. So that's where we're going. Love's movement, love's manner, and its motive. First the movement, which is towards heartfelt peace. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. 
in one body and be thankful. And I'll illustrate peace this way. Um, another word we could use would be harmony, like in a musical sense, which, which is two things. Harmony is two things. First, harmony depends on or requires the absence of dissonance. So, so dissonance is when you have conflicting, clashing musical notes. Notes that are working against one another. Harmony requires that not being the case. And harmony is the presence of something. It is the presence of multiple notes that are working, not against each other, but together in a way that is, is pleasant to listen to. And the reality is, is that we were in dissonance with God. Romans 1.30 says that we were haters of God. Titus 3.3 says that we were at one time hated by others and hating one another. That the human state is to live in dissonance with God and with one another. And Christ has in a real, objective, standard sense made peace, created harmony with all who express true saving faith in him. He has made peace with his people through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There was rebellion and judgment for that rebellion, standing against us, separating us from communion with God. And Jesus did what was necessary to make peace between the two parties. But the peace does not end with Jesus. It extends to his people. It moves to the community of God, which is why it says in one body. A corporate concept of peace, that we are together in peace with one another. Last fall, our church journeyed through the book of 1 Thessalonians and, and Paul has a lot to say in First Thessalonians about what the church ought to do. All of his letters, just filled with things that say what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing in our church function. But he gets to the end, and he has this like summary statement. Live at peace with one another. See, your nature and my nature, and not just our nature, but our upbringing, our personalities, our background, our ethnic heritage, our, our jobs, our homes, our activities, our school our attitudes, we live in a state of dissonance with one another. That we have sin and differences and prejudices that we bring to the table. And none of you are exempt from that statement. That you have things that you bring to the community of God that would create dissonance. That would create unrest. That is the reality of who we are. The natural effect of being rebels against God. We are separate from one another. But Jesus and his gospel have made it so that this dissonance can be brought to nothing. That we can now live in harmony with one another. And so, so Paul says, let peace rule. Meaning that it, it arbitrates, that it umpires, that it acts as judge who reconciles difference. Peace looks into the eyes of our differences and our sins and our disagreements and our different understandings and what it might ought do, what they hope to do, what sin plans to do. 
Peace looks through the gospel at it and says no more. It doesn't separate us anymore. Peace looks at our sin and says you may not have your way with the community of God. Peace rules. It overcomes through shed blood the prejudices that we would have both towards ourselves and towards outsiders who might entrust themselves to Jesus. And so I would ask you, as a community of God, as a church, as a family, is peace something that you are known for? Would you be described as a people who desire peace, who enter into difficult conversations with people, but with an attitude that says, I want to work through this, that we would be reconciled. Are you a maker of peace, as Jesus would say? Or are you known as being divisive? And if you were, if you are, you might not know it. You might have to ask somebody else to help you understand. Would I be known as divisive? Is that me? And to travel a little further down the road, do you even have the kind of relationships that require reconciliation? Do you have the kind of relationships where working towards peace is difficult? Or do you avoid those people? It is easy to show up once a week and be nice to one another, to act kindly towards one another. But do you have the kind of deep relationships, the committed, ongoing relationships that require that greater degree of love? that require the work that is necessary to move towards and achieve peace. So that is the uh, movement of love towards peace. Now the manner. Love's manner is saying and singing. This is the how of loving one another. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So first, there, there's teaching and admonishing. There's, there's saying, and there's a lot that could be said about this, but it wouldn't take much digging simply to see that the call for us is to speak Jesus' words, the words of Scripture, to one another, to disciple, to teach, to communicate the word of God, that there is meant to be amongst Christ's people a transference of truth. Teaching is explaining what God has said, what the Bible says, and to help someone understand how to live it out. And this admonishment is the challenging, the encouraging, the exhorting to follow through on it. And this is our responsibility, one to another, to teach, to explain, and to challenge and encourage, and might it even be to point out sin. And to help one another grow through it and overcome it and confess it. And that's, that's simple enough. But the key word here, I think, is wisdom. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, which is insight, understanding, uh, that which is necessary to see the, the best outcome and how to best achieve that outcome. That, that's wisdom. What is the best outcome What is the best result and what is the best way to achieve that result? So being effective in teaching and admonishing requires wisdom. We need wisdom for who to say something to, 
what to say, and when to say it. Who to say it to? You and I have different spheres of influence, different relationships. And there are people that you are better suited to speak to than I am. And there are people that I am better suited to speak to than you are. The types of relationships that I have, the people that I'm connected with, the work that I have done. That there is a sense in wisdom that I do not get to tell just anybody whatever I want, whenever I want. That there is a people that I am called to speak to. And there is a what to say. Like, what is best to say? You can have all the knowledge of the Bible in the world, but if you can't put it together in a way that is helpful and meaningful and and loving, then it is useless in the work of making disciples. That there is wisdom in knowing how to put things together to communicate to others who know Jesus. It is no good to simply spout off Bible verses. We need the ability to think hard on how to teach and admonish one another. Maybe a person needs a a psalm or to be encouraged simply by the great works of God, a reminder of what he did at the Exodus in the Red Sea, of, of who he conquered through King David, of what occurred at the cross, of how the church was successful in the book of Acts. And maybe there is a time to communicate just care over suffering, generosity, love, compassion. And there is a wisdom for when to say it. There are certain doctrines that, that I love and that I am confident that, that most of you love dearly. And I want others to love them as well. I care about them. They root me and grow me and keep me faithful to the Lord. And I know that there are times when someone is ready to hear those. That there is a particular time and place for our particular truth. That it is not all things to all people in all places all the time. That it takes wisdom to know when to take what truth and to speak it to the person in front of me. So we say, that that's part of the manner of loving one another, and we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. One of the things that the, the, the church, the early church, did well that we tend to be pretty poor at is they sang psalms. And there's a sense of a little bit of recapturing that in modern music now. We have a few artists who are actually doing that, who are starting to put psalms back to, back to music in a way that, that modern um, singers can, can, can use. But uh, the, the early church, they, they would take psalms and they would sing them together because there's a book designed to worship. And if you have a book for worship, you ought to use it. In the Psalms, we see Jesus. We see pictures of him in King David. And with the Psalms, we are able to seek Jesus. That it, the Psalms give us a language that we ought to adopt, that we ought to take on, that we can use in our relationship with God. That the way the Psalter says things is how we can be saying things our God. And so I would just extend an encouragement to you to take steps towards adopting the language of the Psalms. Make it your own, whether that's just memorizing a verse at a time, but see the the Psalter as something that you can use in your relationship to the Lord. I don't know what to pray. You can pray a Psalm. That's there for you. It's meant to be used in worship. Psalms and hymns. 
which were likely songs that had been written in the recent past aimed at helping the corporate uh, family in worship, like what you and I uh, sing on Sundays, what we sang this Sunday. And spiritual songs, likely like utterances of, of the Spirit. If, if you and I were to have something that the Spirit had put on our heart that we wanted to communicate to another. Bible verse, a conviction that God was working with as spiritual songs. And the point being that, that singing is central to the body. That this is a, a necessary act. And we do, it, we do it pretty well on Sundays, I think, for the most part. And I think song is meant to have a bigger role in our lives. And I want to encourage you to, to think about what does it look like to take the great songs of the present and of the past and bring them into our homes. Maybe it's a group that you attend once a week. Sing a, sing a song together. Take a hymn that you all know. Implement music, not just in the Sunday gathering, but in the other spaces. Listen to it in the car that you might know songs that will, love, that will shape you and grow you in your relationship with Jesus. So we have love's movement towards peace, love's manner, which is saying and singing, and then love's motive, which is to see God praised. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is a lofty goal, and it feels, to a certain extent, unattainable. But I don't think it's meant to be. I I think that would be the improper reaction. Um, I think Paul would say that that's not right. If it feels unattainable, then you are thinking about this incorrectly. Everything in the the name of the Lord Jesus does not mean that we just need to have some sort of like catchy statement that we use every time we do something good or every time somebody recognizes something we've done or wants to thank us where we just say, well, glory be to God. In fact, I think that can sometimes do a disservice in the worship of the Lord. I think that sometimes that language can can cheapen the personal nature of what Paul is calling us to. That, That, brothers and sisters, when we love one another, we are loving one another. That when I do something on behalf of a member of our church family... It's because I love that person. God gave me that love, but we already know that. I don't have to remind you every time I demonstrate some sort of act of kindness that that God was the one who gave it to me. We know. The idea here is what I mentioned at the beginning of our journey. It's gratitude. The passage has a lot to say about the church. And the point that he's making here is that in all that we do, all the activity, it's connected back to a heart that is thankful to God for his kindness toward us. That is grateful to the Lord for his compassion towards us. That he was forbearing with us. That he forgave our sins. So that when we express love for one another in whatever way it flows out of a heart that recognizes that God in Jesus has already done a greater act of whatever it is we are about to do. Any act of of kindness towards one another. There is a greater act of kindness that we live in gratefulness for 
as we show kindness to one another. The, the point is a posture, that we live life with this posture of gratefulness, of gratitude towards the Lord, a position that consistently reflects the Savior. As Philippians 2 says, the Savior who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, found in human form, he humbled himself. Therefore, we humble ourselves, become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Family, I'd, I'd call you to this. Be compassionate, be kind, be humble, be meek, be patient, bear with one another, forgive one another. And everything else that the New Testament tells you to do, do that. But over all of those things, put on love, which will bind this people together in perfect harmony. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the love that we have seen in Jesus Christ, for your provision of salvation. We thank you that you did not do and sin and act out of obligation, but you did so because you were compassionate. You felt it towards us. You loved us and in love were kind to us. That in love you were humble towards us. That because of love, you forgave us. Jesus, we thank you. And we ask this morning, as we look ahead at, at Holy Week, as we look ahead at this special, unique season in which we center ourselves on the actions of the gospel, of, of a suffering and a crucifixion and a resurrection, that you would let us see love. And by seeing love, that you would free us to seek to love one another in all ways. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.